0: Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible, so we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com.au. Our passage today is Mark
1: 15,
0: 16 to 39. If you, if you wish to borrow a church Bible, please raise your hand, and a member of our hospitality team will come and pass one to you. Um, so our Bible reading, as I said before, is from the Gospel according to Mark, the second book in the New Testament, and you can find it on page 710 in your church Bibles. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the Praetorian, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees and they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "So." You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a lo- loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lama, Sebektani," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. If you have
1: your Bibles with you still, please open up. If If you didn't put up your hand before, but now you think, oh, maybe I would like one, please do it again. Because a lot of times I'm going to be referring to a verse, not reading it out, but thinking you're eyeballing it while I'm talking. Mark chapter 15, 16 to 39 Many Australians are unaware of what the cross means. They're aware that Christians believe that Jesus was nailed to a cross and died, but very few. Australians understand why is that important to Christians. Mark originally wrote his gospel that we're reading for Christians in Rome in approximately 60 AD. These Christians who he wrote the gospel for lived in a world that did not understand the Christians. It did not understand why they would worship someone who was crucified. The piece of graffiti you can see up on the screen there that's from ancient Rome and that sums up how the average Roman viewed the Christian worship of Jesus whoever wrote that graffiti is mocking a Christian by the name of Alexamenos he's picturing Alex's god like the Egyptian gods with a human body and an animal head but he's saying in his graffiti that Alexamenos worships a god who is a donkey everyone knew that Romans only crucified criminals, traitors to Rome, rebellious slaves and the general scum of the earth. So by picturing Alexamenos worshipping a God on a cross, he is saying Alexamenos is stupid worshipping as God, someone who was crucified as the scum of the earth. The early Christians believed in Jesus and his death for them, but they lived in a world who thought they were mad, who thought they were stupid for worshipping a crucified criminal. In some ways, that's our world too. I know quite a few Australians who could have drawn that graffiti. They think the same way. Mark wrote his gospel to help the Christians of Rome understand why Jesus had to die, why he had to die a death that was shameful, on a cross, as a crucified criminal, and write to explain to the Christians why that is actually something we have no need to be ashamed of. In fact, something we can actually be proud of. So let's read Mark's gospel together. And let's let Mark sort of unpack it for us. But before we get to Mark 15, a few words about reading Mark's gospel as a whole. If you start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it begins with these words. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. A few verses later, we read from the very mouth of God himself. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then just a couple of verses later, Mark, from the mouth of Jesus, gives a summary of why the Son of God came to earth. 15. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus came, God's Son, from heaven to earth, to proclaim that the time has come for God to fulfil his prophecies and for mankind to turn back to God and trust him. These insights from chapter 1 create a dimension of irony as we read Mark 15. As we read through the events of Jesus' crucifixion, we're going to meet various people who are abusing Jesus, mocking him, for his claims to be God's son and king. We read all of this knowing that they are mocking and killing God's Son who created you and me and the world. God's Son who had broken into time and space to call mankind back to God. We also need to read Mark 15 in the light of Old Testament prophecy and Mark in particular has Isaiah 53 in the back of his mind. Okay, the story picks up where Pilate has just sentenced Jesus to death and the prisoner, Jesus, is now removed from Pilate's presence and taken into the Roman guardhouse. Mark's description of what's happening next perfectly matches what archaeologists have uncovered in Jerusalem, putting together with the historical records. They took him into the Praetorium. The praetorium was the barracks of the elite praetorian guard whose job was to guard the emperor and to guard his governors out in the provinces. It was located in Jerusalem inside Herod's palace. Herod's palace had been requisitioned by the Romans for the governor and the praetorian guard. It says the whole company was called together there. The technical term behind that Greek word company in the Roman terms, is the whole cohort, And the cohort means about one-tenth of a legion. So we've got five to six hundred men in the open courtyard of Herod's palace mocking Jesus. This is serious mocking. It's not like in the movies where you see three or four men in a room. The movies all get it wrong. They are using Jesus as entertainment like a pantomime show for the amusement of 600 soldiers. The mocking words, Hail the King of the Jews! You can hear the laughter go through the 600. The mocking with the purple robe of royalty that they've got just from Herod's palace, from the wardrobe from when Herod does visit town. The ridicule of the crown of thorns. The mock kneeling at his feet. They strike him on the head with a reed, what we would call a cane. They spit on him. Jesus endures the shame and the humiliation as he is their toy for the game among the boys. They think they're mocking a wannabe failure. But in their spiritual blindness, they are blind to the fact but they do in fact have God's Son and King right in front of them. As we read this, knowing that God has declared that he is his Son and King, we cry out within, no, you can't do that to God's Son and King. But then our minds go to Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And we know that God's plan. Verse 22 It was named the place of the skull because it was a place of death and shame. Verse 23 They offered him myrrh to drink, mixed with the wine. Myrrh is a drug that dulls the pain. But it wasn't an act of kindness from the Roman soldiers to offer him a painkiller. As expert torturers, the Romans knew that the myrrh kept the victim alive longer and conscious longer to extend the pain, the shame and the humiliation. But the point Mark wants to make is Jesus willingly endured it all without drugs. Twenty-four the bare simple words, and they crucified him. Now, despite the many movies that give us lots of blood and guts and close-ups of the pain as the nails go through the wrist, despite all of that, Mark is loudly silent on the physical details. All he says is, and they crucified him. It's like Mark doesn't actually want us to focus on the blood and the guts. But he wants us to focus on the shame and the rejection of it all. And as we'll see later, the wrath of God. 24. They divide his clothes. Yes, he was naked. The extreme shame of it all. Well, they played lots at his feet to see who's going to get his clothes. They think so little of him. 25.26 It was the Roman custom to put a sign above the crucified criminal stating their crime. Mark wants us to know that Jesus was crucified for the crime of being God's Messiah King. This is dripping with irony. Pilate didn't put that up there as an act of worship to Jesus the King. Pilate didn't think he was politically their King. Pilate wrote that to annoy the Jews. But for us the reader, we get the irony. In the providence of God, that sign was saying far more than Pilate ever thought he was saying. Rather than heeding God's call for mankind to turn back to God and trust and believe and repent, rather mankind was showing God the ultimate rejection by mocking scorning and now killing God's son and king who had been sent to call mankind back to God. Verse 27, he was crucified with a criminal on each side. we meant to connect that with Isaiah fifty-three twelve, He was numbered with the transgressors. If you keep going through, verse 29, they derided him. Verse 30, they mocked him. Verse 32, they reviled him. And you can read the details as you look through that. Like most demands for a sign, the demand for a sign in verse 32 is not an act of faith. But they are words of hard-hearted, mocking unbelief. A stubborn refusal to accept all the signs that Jesus had done for the last three years, clearly demonstrating that that he is God and he is God's Messiah. Let's stop there and pretend we don't know how the story finishes. What would you do? How would you react at this point if you were God? He sent his son to call mankind back to himself to repent and believe that they beaten, mocked, spat on and are in the process of killing his son. What would you do next if you were God, and they were doing that to your son and king? God would have been justified to finish the world right there and then, and send us all to hell. But that's not what God does. Let's read on and see what he does do. Verses 33 to 34. When the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although they've earlier mocked him for a sign, God now actually gives them a sign. Two signs. The first sign, for those with eyes to see. The three hours of darkness that came over the earth was a sign that Amos chapter 8, verse 9 was taking place, written hundreds of years earlier. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. If you read through Amos and see that verse in its context, this was a prophecy of the day when God would eventually judge sin. This three hours of darkness was a sign that they were witnessing God's judgment against sin. Our sin. But God's wrath was not being poured out on mankind. It was being poured out on his own son. Why didn't God punish us? Why does he punish his son instead? Mark doesn't stop the story to tell us. Because as Mark's writing, Paul's letters have already been written. And he knows that the apostle Paul has already said, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul just didn't make that up. God had shown Paul that Jesus' death was fulfilling Isaiah 53 and other prophecies. This collection of extracts from Isaiah 53 make the point. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. Iniquities, another in word for sin. Verse 12, for he bore the sin of many. Mankind deserved the wrath of God for rejecting God and his son, for not heeding his call to come back to God in repentance and faith. But instead of punishing us, mankind, he poured out his wrath against our sins on his son. The sin of the world, of all mankind, of you and me, was taken from us and our sin was placed on Jesus. And now the darkness was symbolising the judgment of God being poured out, not on us, but on our sins on Jesus. So that for we who believe in Jesus, we can stand before God on the judgment day with our sin taken. The sign of darkness symbolized the wrath of God. But Jesus bore more than just the wrath of God. Let's keep reading. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a cry of anguish as Jesus knew that God was rejecting him in shame. Jesus bore the shame of the world as well. In a shame on a culture, which first century Jewish culture was, the ultimate in public rejection was rejection by your own people, your own group. Jesus was publicly rejected by his own father. Let's imagine for a moment. Imagine it's your 21st or something like that. All of your friends and all your family are there. When the speech time comes, Some of your friends start saying really mean things about you. I'm not talking about the Australian friendly mean. I'm talking about mean mean. Those you expect to stand up for you, your close friends are ducking for cover. Nowhere to be seen. But you're you're thinking to yourself, at least my father's going to stand up and say something good for you. Your father stands up then he turns his back on you in contempt and walks away and leaves you there ashamed and embarrassed. Mankind has shamefully rejected God's son and king. But instead of God returning shame to humanity for what they've done, he turns shame on his own son and publicly rejects his own son. Again, he was a substitute. He bore the wrath for where we deserve wrath. He bore the shame for where we deserve shame. Jesus bore it both ways, as both God and man. As the Son of God, he took the shame that was directed from humanity to God, to himself. As a representative man, he took the shame from God to humanity on himself. So that come the judgment day, with those who have not believed, who have not repented, are shut out in outer darkness, with weeping and gnashing of teeth. When that day comes, we who have believed in Jesus will be welcomed in with honour, because Jesus has borne our shame, and we bear his glory. Verse 38, God gives them a second sign. The curtain is ripped in two. It's telling us, as a sign, that Jesus' sacrifice is accepted. The curtain was a curtain in the temple that separated the holy place where God was so that people couldn't get in. He kept people away from the pure and holy God. But God didn't keep people away because he hated people. God kept people away from himself as an act of mercy to us because if we came into the presence of God with our sin upon ourselves, we would be destroyed immediately. The curtain kept us away to preserve us, to keep us safe from death and judgment. The curtain is like the sign at the front door that says, don't come into this house wearing muddy boots. If you wear muddy boots on my carpet, I don't know what I'm going to have to do to you. The sign is protecting us from the judgment of whoever's going to do that to us, my wife. The curtain protected us from the judgment of God. But in the tearing of the temple curtain, God is symbolically saying to us, Jesus' death has been accepted. It's paid it all. If we trust in Jesus, we'll no longer be judged for our sins. God and mankind can now come face to face without destruction. Because Jesus has paid it all. The curtain tearing is like God saying, Come into my presence. It's safe now. The scene transitions nicely. Jesus was forsaken to bear our shame, and we are welcomed into God's presence with nothing to fear. Verse 39 Mark records that a Roman centurion sees and recognises that the Jewish mockers have not seen. Surely this man was the Son of God. The centurion is saying for us what we are meant to see as we read the passage. Mark records this detail to challenge his original Roman readers. This Roman centurion saw. Do you? But more than that, the centurion stands as a model A model that it's possible to move from blind mocker to believer. Think back to where we started the passage. Jesus being mocked before the Romans. That Roman centurion was probably back there. Laughing with them at Jesus. As a centurion, he may have even been one of those up front beating and spitting on Jesus. But now he sees. Just as Mark challenged his original Roman readers, this Roman saw, do you? What does Mark want us to see? In summary, as we conclude, yes, Jesus' death was a shameful death. Jesus came to the world as God's son and king to save the world, to call mankind back to God, to repent and believe, but the world shamed him and killed him. However, although the world meant it as a rejection of God and Jesus, he was fulfilling the prophecies. He was fulfilling God's plan. Isaiah 53 makes it clear,